Let me also express my gratitude and how honored I feel to be here. Uh, and I especially feel at home, this is my old socialist training. Look what's there, Marx Engels work, you know, from my youth. But to avoid a misunderstanding here with all these jokes about the palace of culture and so on, uh, not only am I not, as some stupid people accuse me, a kind of a secret closet Stalinist or whatever. On the contrary, this is, I think, still the big trauma. I don't think we have a proper theory. What went wrong? In what way? How was something like Stalinism even possible, imaginable? And I, this is one of the reasons of my eternal tension with some followers of Frankfurter Schule or Habermasians. Look, one great argument against Habermas for me is this one. If you were to read all of Habermas, I doubt if you, let's say all about you knew about Germany in the last 50 years, you would have learned it from reading Habermas's books. Would you even have guessed that there are two Germanies? I don't think. Habermas strictly behaves as, he lives, as if he lives in West Germany, it's an immanent critique and so on. And that's what always, already when I was a student, that's what shocked me about Frankfurter Schule. On the one hand, what is their basic project? Dialectic der Aufklärung, which means, to simplify it, the horrible things that happened in the 20th century, Gulag, Holocaust, and so on, are not simply some regression into pre-modern logic, like barbarism returned. No, they were something which was there as an immanent potential of the project of modernity itself. Okay, but then why did they focus in their analysis only almost exclusively on fascism. I mean, it should be done, no doubt here. It intrigued me that isn't Stalinism a much clearer example, case of dialectic der Aufklärung? Because fascism was not Aufklärung. It was, as we all know, a conservative modernization, like this impossible dreams, dream, how to have capitalism without capitalism, without class struggle, for this you need an external enemy, the Juden, and so on and so on. But, and uh, incidentally, I've written about it, it's so nice in what way you can account for this basic difference, which doesn't make Stalinism any better, between Stalinism and fascism, even at the level of this apparently totally superficial rituals and so on. To give you one example, do you know, I read this in Anne Applebaum's book on Gulag, that even in the harshest times, mid-30s and then till 50, every year on Stalin's birthday, all prisoners in a Gulag camp were gathered and had to sign, each of them, a telegram to Konrad Stalin, wishing him all the best, and so on and so on. Now, of course, I'm not an idiot. I'm not <laughs> claiming they really meant it. What I'm claiming is this, and here you can see one aspect of the difference. 
Can you even imagine something like this in Nazi Germany? It would have been totally meaningless in the Nazi universe, I don't know, to gather once a year all Auschwitz inmates and make them <laughs> sign a telegram for all wishing all the best to Hitler and so on. Another thing which makes, uh, accounts for this difference, precisely this uh, so-called uh, uh, show trials, monstrous trials, you have something which is specific to Stalinism there, this public confession. You know how it looks, like Bukharin and all of them. You were, let's forget in what way. It wasn't even primarily physical torture. It was more pressure, like, if you don't confess, we, we arrest also your children, whatever. Okay, but the mystery is, why the need for this public confession? And you discover something very strange, how, although the one who was at this show trials condemned and so on and confessed, although he was treated as the lowest of the lowest, you know, it's very interesting to read sacred texts of Stalinism, like a short history of the Communist Party, the sacred text, with regard to expressions they use, like it's piece of sheet, vermin, insect, and so on. So, at the same time, you are the lowest of the lowest, but at the same time, it is as if you still participate in universal human mind, that you can account for yourself. For example, I remember reading in, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, the Czech trial, uh, Slansky, I think it was, no? Rudolf Slansky, mm -hmm. uh, uh, how at the beginning, the prosecutor asks him, how did you become a traitor? And he says, I come from a bourgeois family. Already when I was a young boy, my parents taught me to hate workers and so on and so on. What's so interesting is that you see, you are shit, scum of scum. But at the same time, you participate in universal reason and can tell the truth about yourself. This is unimaginable in Nazism. That's why, not because they were better. You cannot, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for the Nazis to organize a big trial where, through torture and so on, they would have made some Jewish leaders, whatever, to confess the plot against uh, Germany. It never happened. It's a, the, my point is that precisely in these perverse details, every prisoner still sending a telegram to Stalin, or this confession. This is what makes Stalinism part of Enlightenment movement, that we all participate in it. And again, this is what shocked me. Why don't you find a theory of it in Frankfurter Schule? Now, I did my homework, I know. You have Herbert Marcuse, Soviet Marxism, but this is... I read it decades ago, but this is just a very specific analysis of Khrushchev, uh, uh, his speech on the 20th Congress. It's not more... Then you have a couple of texts here, there, but no systematic approach to it. And I'm not accusing them, Frankfurt and Schule, of being secretly communist. No, they were quite normal anti-communists, believe me. I read in this big biography of Adorno that, for example, in... Uh, the early 50s, 
Horkheimer was so anti-communist that he even thought that uh, social democrats shouldn't be allowed to take power. Social democrat in West Germany. So he was much closer to that first generation, uh, Theodor Heuss and so on, liberal politicians. No? So you see, here I think, that's why I'm so practically obsessed by Stalinism. Why there is a not, I'm not a right-wing revisionist, definitely not. I'm not playing the game, which is a very dangerous game going on today, of subtly rehabilitating fascism. You know how? The first, in my country also, Slovenia, it's happening. The first step is to say all sides were doing horrible things, to just apparently uh, equalize them. No? Like, you know, this is an old story, like, okay, uh, okay, Germans did horrible things, but Western allies bombed Dresden and so on, all that, all that. Then you go a step further, and you say, very interesting, that uh, you follow this, uh, 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 who is the historian, Nolte, no? Yeah, who wrote a book on Heidegger also. Then you say that, nonetheless, fascism was a reaction to communism, that it took all bad features from communism, like already in Soviet Union before Hitler, they had concentration camps and so on and so on. Then you just have to go one step further and say, those who collaborated with the Nazis, they were just confronted with a desperate choice. And they have tragically chosen the lesser of two evils. And in a way, we should understand them, maybe even uh, support them, and so on and so on. And I think this is a very tragic tendency. Not that I have, again, any sympathy for Stalinism, but still, I think, not that I think Stalinism was better. You notice, for me, one argument for Stalinism, that it had dissidents. Dissidents also in the sense of inner party dissidents. Stalin all the time had to fight from Trotsky to others who reproached him for you betrayed the true greatness of communist project and so on and so on. In, in Nazism you don't find this. Okay, we can play the game if Georg Strasser or those early SA Nazis were this, but Afterwards, once Hitler established himself, sorry, I'm not aware of any tendency in Nazi Germany reproaching Hitler for betraying the true fascist legacy or whatever. And I think precisely this radical inner tension in Stalinism is a, a perverted effect of the fact that there was an authentic core at the beginning. I think that whatever you say, and we can play this game, I'm ready to play it. I'm not saying, I'm not a crazy Trotskyist who claims, oh, if you know this Trotskyist dream. If only Lenin were to survive three, four years more and made the pact with Trotsky, there would be no Stalin, we would have what? A kind of a happy social democracy or what? No, I think the tragedy was authentic. I really don't think there was a possibility of another way to be taken. But nonetheless, it was an authentic tragedy, in the sense of it did begin as an incredible emancipatory explosion, it turned into a nightmare.
And I don't think we have yet a good theory about it. Either we go too far into blaming, I don't know, entire history of humanity. Like, are we aware? That's why I like it. How crazy is dialectic thereof clearing the book? It traces manipulative reason, so-called instrumentale vernunt, which begins, which culminates in 20th century horrors. It traces it basically to the very beginning of humanity, the first magic thinking, which is already manipulation. So basically, the thesis there is that Stalinism, in an ironic sense, is the peak, the climax of the entire history of humanity, you know, in the sense of what began with the first magic primitive, so-called manipulations, it culminated in Stalinism. So this, for me, doesn't do the work. I don't, I don't believe in this. At the same time, I don't believe in this simple delimitations. But you know what? I'm now getting caught into my own trap of two, three times it did happen to me that I gave a talk and all of the talk consisted of preliminary improvisations, <laughs> you know. But so actually, let, so let me only, yeah. uh, only tell you that uh, um, like two things. One is that actually it was also Stalin himself who supposed to send letters to himself, as he was also like uh, differently than Hitler was putting his hands together after his own speeches. Yeah, I remember. This is one of my big jokes. And you can check it empirically, if you don't believe me, that Hitler gives a speech. People applaud. He just stands and recognizes himself as the addressee. When you have a Stalinist leadership, after a Stalin speech, people applaud. Always the leader joins the applause. It may appear nonsense, like, does he applaud himself? No, because the logic is totally different. Stalin's position is not symbolically that of a leader, but that of a perfect servant of the people. That's, that's the basic dogma of Stalinism. We are just instruments of historical necessity or, or whatever, and so on and so on. But, but actually, you have the, the theories on the... Um, explanations mm. tracing uh, the uh, emergence of uh, totalitarianism in enlightenment but in the uh, mm, like re marxist revisionist behind the iron curtain kokovsky book the first volume of main currents of marxism is exactly about this but actually you have many other like popper is also the same like yeah uh, but okay for reasons into which uh, we cannot go now. The reason I is probably because they are coming from Enlightenment tradition differently than the Frankfurter Schule. Yes, but what I don't... For example, let's take Popper. You know, I, uh, for reasons we don't have time now, I'm afraid it will really be just then some introductory remarks mm -hmm. exchanged between the two of us. You know, for me, uh, 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 I radically disagree with Popper's basic anti-Platonic premise that, you know, Plato, yes, there are, of course, ominous things in Plato, but my God, if I were to choose between Plato and Aristotle, Plato, absolutely. First, let's not forget this. First, of course, I hope this is a rhetorical question. Did you read Plato's Politeia or what? Republic, whatever you translate it, state. 
Did you notice two things there, which are extremely important? A, there are no slaves there. Plato, Plato's vision excludes slaves. While uh, the good liberal Aristotle, you know, his definition, slaves are uh, talking uh, tools or whatever, and so on. Second thing, maybe even more important, I'm sorry to inform you this, but Plato explicitly says, in my ideal state, women are equal to men. All posts are accessible to women also. He explicitly says the fact that women today are not in that position, it's a historical contingency, should be abolished. While Aristotle, on the contrary, he naturalizes, ontologizes even sexual difference, you know, basically uh, male versus female is forum versus uh, uh, morphe versus hile, forum versus matter, and so on and so on. So, no, I think uh, that, uh, you know, when we accuse some past thinkers of proto-totalitarianism, we should be very, very careful. Uh, the same for uh, Robespierre and company, Jacobins, Jacobiner, Jacobiner, Jacobins. My God, I mean, uh, one thing, there is one reason for which I will forever love them. Their relationship to Haiti revolution. You know, Haiti revolution was something for me, one of the greatest events in the history of humanity. Why? Because till then, you know, black slaves rebelled in Haiti around the time of French revolution. Till that point, uh, all slave rebellions were, let's return home, back to our roots, to whatever, no? And this ruling ideology easily finds it. You remember, if you are old enough, I am unfortunately am, some 30, 40 years ago, there was a Hollywood hit miniseries, precisely The Roots, of how mm -hmm. an, uh, uh, an American black guy finally established succeed in retracing to the beginning so on. Uh, no, the, Hai the shock of Haiti revolution was that black slaves rebelled there, but not on this program returning to our roots, but we want to do the same as French are doing, French revolution. And here, not that I'm flattering to you, this is one of the most glorious moments for me of Polish history. Because first, all glory goes here to Jacobins. When Haiti delegation, they won first, visited Paris, Assemblée Nationale, they got a triumphant reception in Assemblée Nationale, immediately recognized as equals and so on. Then Napoleon took over and not only he sent the army to Haiti to crush the rebellion, but he even wrote that this precedent is so dangerous, blacks liberated, that all should be killed, women, children, and new slaves brought there. And he sent there the army where a strong contingent was of Polish soldiers. And I must tell you, I hope you know it, it's one of the most beautiful stories that I know. French army was approaching the black army of liberated slaves, and they heard some singing. They thought, oh, some stupid tribal songs, probably. When they come closer, 
they heard what the black slaves were singing. La Marseillaise, of course. And all the glory to Poles. But the most cynical in this yeah. Napoleon's move yeah. was that he sent not just soldiers, but the Polish uprisers um, against partition. So the, the people who actually were fighting for freedom and they... Yeah, the way but that's they the beauty. Released. You know what they did then? The Polish regiment. They simply, I simplify the story, realized, my God, we are fighting on the wrong side. And they changed sides. This is why, even when there was the darkest temptation around 1804-5 to kill the white people, just black republic, they always exempted the Poles. And I love this as a nonsensical manipulation, but which works so nicely. You know, in Haiti Constitution 1804, they wanted to have a black republic, but they at the same time wanted to uh, uh, recognize the Poles. So you know what the Article 4, I think, of this Constitution, you know what it says? It says, Haiti is a black republic. All citizens of Haiti, independently of the color of their skin, are black. <laughs> I think this is an absolutely ingenious solution. No, but you see what I'm saying, to go back to the point. Yes, horrible things did happen in French Revolution. Although, you know, for me it's all a matter of statistics, in the sense of like, read any precise history, and you will see that there were much more liquidations, killings by state before Jacobins and after in the Thermidor. That it's very simple. Jacobins didn't just kill ordinary poor people, you know. They dared also to kill some notable people, you know. It's like my friend, the Indian writer Arundhati Roy, you know. She wrote to me, you remember two years, no, yeah, two, three years ago, there were some public rapes in India. And we were all protesting, like five people raped a girl in a bus. I agree to avoid them, it's horrible. But she wrote me, you know why this exploded so widely as news? Because the girl was, in both cases, there were two, three cases, middle class and the ra rapists were poor. She wrote to me, if you want to see horror, go to Bombay, or as you say now politically correct, uh, go to Mumbai and visit brothels there. You discover absolute nightmares. Uh, 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 these middlemen are buying from Nepal and poor parts of India, girls from the age four and five, and simply then you can have her buy her relatively cheaply as a sex slave permanently or I mean it's nightmare and it's not a secret everybody knows where this happens you see nobody writes about this and we are talking about thousands of cases like this here I have I am returning to my old-fashioned paranoiac attitude of our freedom is bourgeois freedom and so on. Yes, we are free, but to what extent? What do we learn in our media? For example, back to India. You read so little bit about this in our media. You know that now in India, there is a big Maoist rebellion, so-called Naxalite, going on. Probably around 800,000, maybe 1 million rebels. 
fighting for their survival in the jungle, those poor tribal areas, army is now decimating them to develop mining there and so on. But uh, it's not, like, it's incredibly worse than all the top hits of our news, West Bank, uh, Palestina and so on. No, India is supposed to be the biggest democracy good, so you, you don't mention this. Did you see the movie, which is a shitty movie, I admit, but it has a moment of truth. Did you see Slumdog Millionaire? You remember what happens there at the very beginning? The guy who is just accused of cheating a little bit at some TV quiz is taken to a police station and they're tortured with electricity and so on. And I asked my Indian friends, is this happening? Yes, they told me. If you are not very rich, police is simply torturing people there. And I was told, this is a wonderful detail, that some uh, Indian democratic intellectuals even organized a protest, a petition, wonderfully ironic petition, where they claimed they demanded from the police to at least raise at the level of Chinese police in Tibet. Because they are torturing there in Tibet, but not if you cheat at a TV quiz, you know. There you are tortured, of course, we know when, if there is a suspicion of uh, contact with Dalai Lama political, no? So their demand was, please, just follow the Chinese there. Torture us only if there is a political suspicion or what. Don't torture everybody and so on. So how, how much do we know but... I'm losing time, <laughs> short after this short introduction, we have, <laughs> oh my God, we have, no, okay, I will try to, can we go a little bit over, like it's not that after 40 minutes I have to stop. Go with your flow. I hope, okay, sorry? Yeah, but you know that I always fight this metaphysical notion of linear time. <laughs> this is how I concretely fight it. No, no, okay, sorry. Now. I want, what I wanted to do, let me do some serious theory at least, is my starting, now I will more report on what I wanted to do. My starting point was the three levels of what we confront as problems today and how they are structured. On the one hand, it is the absolute external enemy. Uh, ISIS, uh, Islamic State, Boko Haram, this totally brutal, irrational other. Then we have the mid-level, let's call it new geopolitical tensions, United States, China, or Putin, Russia, and so on. And then we have the renewed, a little bit more radical left in our Europe itself, Syriza, maybe Podemos, and so on, and so on. My point, of course, is that the most dangerous is the last one. Syriza and so on. That ISIS is, uh, I, it's even so, so non-transparent to know, I have good connections with Israel, I've been informed, what is going on there? Who is supporting whom? There are some good reasons that Americans and uh, Israelis are not totally innocent there. What is now confirmed, uh, it was published in our press, you just have to look at it, you know, these are the small news. For example, do you know that in South Lebanon, 
the main, the most of the border is controlled by uh, Hezbollah. And then you have one part of the border, eastern part, which is controlled by Al-Qaeda. Because Al-Qaeda is Sunni and fights Hezbollah, Israel is systematically with arms, food and medical help supporting Al-Qaeda there. And it's not a crazy story, it's documented. I mean, they admit it and so on. So who knows what game people are playing there. The reason I like, not like, I find interesting this uh, Islamic fundamentalism is we, should, we are not surprised enough of the strangeness of what is going on there. For example, isn't it strange that we have Boko Haram, a big social movement which wants to restructure entire society and its main programmatic point is women at their own place. That is to say, no Western education for women, which means no education, and so on and so on. Isn't this something so weird? How could this have happened? That all of a sudden we are back to the 60s when we were saying uh, sexuality is political, but not exactly in the same sense, you know. And it's also interesting to what extent it's easy to make fun of Boko Haram, you know. But they are just the extreme point. There is more and more. This is, I think, what is also behind this fear of gay rights, or even, you remember, you were part of it here two, three years ago when that crazy Conchita Wurst won Eurovision. The Russian reaction was very interesting. It was almost one step towards Boko Haram reaction, no? Like Putin said, I read in the Bible, there are two kinds of people, men and women. What is going on now here and so on, you know? My favorite statement was made by Zirinovsky, the nationalist, who says in Europe, there are now no longer men and women, there is only it. You know, some kind of Stephen King monster, but still, uh, okay, that's... Uh, this so-called fundamentalism. What, what I find uh, uh, strange here is, is uh, are a couple of things. The first thing is that, and here we should become more self-critical, why is this happening? Why this, also in our country, with fundamentalists, this politicization on, of religion? Don't blame just Islam. You know that these are official data. FBI in the United States has under they have under observation two million Americans, Christian fundamentalists, as potential threat. Wait a minute, this is almost the same percentage, one percent too, as in uh, in uh, Muslim countries. So of course we should fight fundamentalism, but we should also raise the question: what is it? in the process of global capitalism, which generates fundamentalism. Because fundamentalism is not simply a reminder of the past. You know which example I always quote here? Afghanistan. If some of you are old enough, I am, unfortunately. I remember 40 years ago, 50. Afghanistan was maybe the most secular of the Middle East uh, Islam countries. They had a pro-Western king, kind of a technocrat. They had, kind of, yeah, yeah. They had a very, uh, <coughs> sorry, 
they have a, even a strong local communist party, and so on. Then, you know what happened? Communists made coup d'etat. When it failed, Soviet Union intervened to support them. Then Americans mobilized their allies, like Osama bin Laden, <laughs> and so on. So you see what's the tragedy? The most, one of the most tolerant countries, it became fundamentalist as part of being caught in global process. So we shouldn't play innocent here and mock them. There are fundamentalists in Arab countries. There are also fundamentalists in United States themselves. Or which countries probably, apart from ISIS, the most fundamentalist? Saudi Arabia. But are we aware of what strange country Saudi Arabia is? It's nothing. It's something that survives strictly from American and other countries' money. It's something which has no substance. They are getting billions from oil. It's, it's Western capitalism or capital organized as a state there. So, again, uh, this would be my first point. Second point, why this politicization? Maybe, did he even visit you here? My Croat friend, Boris Buden. Yeah. He wrote a wonderful book on this phenomena where he developed something which, which I deeply agree. That uh, this uh, politicization of religion today that we are witnessing, it's not simply religion invading politics, but literally religion replacing politics itself. It's what we all know is happening. We are approaching an era where our societies are more and more depoliticized, depoliticized in the sense that we have all our private freedoms, but then experts run economy, and all politics that remains is mostly cultural politics. So it's as if politics, which is disappearing, losing its substance, authentic politics, political struggle, is returning in the guise of religion. We I think that this politicization of religion is strictly correlative to the disappearance of politics from our, uh, from our societies. Now, uh, okay, I will improvise a little bit, then you cut me short whenever you want. Uh, uh, next thing I would like to uh, develop here is uh, what does this mean I've written about it, for our notion of freedom. Are we free or not in the West? Maybe some of you know this line of thought of mine, but I would like to repeat it. Uh, uh, of course we are free, and I'm not a stupid Marxist who, I, I'm not trying to sell you this shit, you know, oh, it's just formal freedom and so on. No, the ABC lesson of Marx is form matters. So, an authentic Marxist will never tell you, oh, this is just a formal freedom. Things begin as a form. Look at human rights. We all know that at the beginning, 18th century, human rights were basically rights of white people, of property, and so on. There was a subtle network of exclusions. But instead of saying, okay, these were just formal rights, People did something differently. They simply 
expanded this rights. First women said, why not also us? Then blacks in Haiti said. So forum matters. So, but let me go on. Nonetheless, let's say I ask you, are you free? You would say yes. I also ask myself, I'm not treating you as idiots. Or if I am, I'm also part of a group of idiots. Okay. Uh, uh, then I ask you, in what sense are you free? I claim that most, what you would have told me is something like freedom of personal choices, no? You would have told me, I'm free because I can read whatever I want, I can do whatever I want in sexuality, I can travel uh, whatever I want, I can up to a point, here things get complex, I can say publicly whatever I want, I can uh, uh, take a job, whatever I want, now again, I would add, if you get it, and so on. But, okay, this freedom of choices, it's a nice thing, but is this enough? My thesis is, and this is the lesson of what was disclosed by WikiLeaks, and now everyone is talking about it, this is the lesson of this old famous secret, like uh, TISA, TISA, secret trade agreements, that we are free, but the social texture frame which underlies our freedom, which determines what are our choices, is more and more non-transparent. Things are, that's the horror of TISA agreement. Trade and flow of information agreement, which as we all know, if accepted, will determine in detail coordinates of financial life and other, which will seriously restrain governments of what they can do, and so on. And uh, there was no debate in the original plan of this agreement. It even said that it should remain secret for five years after it is accepted. So this is what fascinated me, how we are free at a personal level, maybe even more and more free. But the very frame of our freedom, you know, you are free in a certain context to choose this or that, that frame is more and more impenetrable. And here ideology enters, I claim. In what sense? Ideology. Uh, in the sense that uh, the trick is that your very form of unfreedom is presented to you as a new freedom. You can see this appearing in the, the, uh, the mode of work, precarious work, which is getting more and more important. It's in a way horrible. You are all the time in anxiety. You, uh, will my contract be prolonged and so on? You, uh, uh, health insurance is not covered. Retirement, you have to do it yourself and so on and so on. But here come postmodern social theorists like Anthony Giddens, who is now happily half forgotten, who tell you, but these are new forms of freedom. Look, state no longer prescribes to you how to be, uh, what health insurance, you are free to choose it. Or, you know, like, uh, or they say, basically, that the wonderful trick is to treat each of us as a small capitalist, no? The official postmodern theory is this one. We are all self-entrepreneurs. Let's say I'm a poor worker, I get a credit for 10,000 euros. And then I'm free to choose. 
Will I go take my family to a big holiday? Will I put money aside for studies of my children? Will I invest in health or whatever? It's true. You have this choice. But at the same time, this, the constellation of this choice causes incredible anxiety, effectively limits your freedom, and so on and so on. So I think that, again, this is our paradox. What is more and more disappearing from our societies is freedom, which should be part of our Western freedoms, and not communist, but even ordinary democratic freedoms. The freedom, not just the freedom of choice within the existing social framework, but the freedom to collectively decide how to change this framework itself. And this is, I claim, more and more becoming, uh, becoming uh, almost unimaginable. I mean, uh, uh, this is why, and I don't have any naive hopes for them, this is why I admire Syriza. My heart is breaking about how they are treated, because I know them personally. I met a couple of times Tsipras, Varoufakis, my God, we are friends, and so on. I can tell you this, forget about this medialized Varoufakis, a crazy eccentric guy who walks around without, without a tie and makes provocations and so on and so on. Read, try to get hold of what Varoufakis basically proposes to Brussels, to European Union. It's something, if you look at all his proposals, it's, some, it's something so modest, that, literally, what he is demanding from Brussels is 40, 50 years ago, this would have been an extremely centrist, modest social democracy. Much less than Sweden was doing at that, at that point. Now, this is the first thing you should think about. Where are we when something that was part of the totally acceptable normal social, mainstream social democracy. To do this today, you appear as a crazy, lunatic, radical leftist. No, uh, 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 there is, then there is another interesting thing, the topic of superego. Namely, uh, you know, since I'm here also to speak in Freud House, we know, Iberich, superego. Superego is something very interesting, you know. Superego, Freudian, it's not simply an ethical agency, but it's an obscene ethical agency. Freud described it nicely how the paradox of superego, Iberich, is that the more you follow it, the more you are guilty. You know, you are like your failure is part of the game in advance. And it's incredible to what extent this is confirmed. Uh, what, look, if you look at the statements by Varoufakis and others, they are not claiming, no, we Greeks don't want to pay the debt. No, they, my God, read them. Their language is extremely rational. They say, yes, we screwed it up, yes. Their only criticism, or a couple of criticisms, are very rational. They claim first, listen, it's not Greeks as such. Which government is most responsible for the Greek debt? New democracy government. Okay, we had elections. Whom did Western Europe support? New democracy. 
sorry, isn't this a little bit strange? That you have a, yes, it's like, you know, uh, fighting criminal and then supporting the main criminal. Second thing, uh, not only the conditions, how this uh, debt was acquired, but second thing, it's clear that, and here I would like to make you read, they are now popular, some of these post-Negri thinkers, Italian, like uh, Franco Berardi or Maurizio Lazzarato. Lazzarato wrote a wonderful book called The Rise of the Indebted Man, where he has a wonderful, simple, but I think true theory of how in today's society where you no longer can afford direct command, herrschaft, domination, debt is the main way to control individuals and states. Because if you are indebted, you are controlled. You have to work for the debt and so on, to repay it and so on. And so the basic dialectic here is that it's absolutely clear that the question is not should the Greeks return the debt or not. I think that the secret ideal of those banks and countries who give debts is precisely that the debt should not be returned. That you have to be permanently in this controlled position, feeling guilty and so on. You know where I tested this empirically? Some 10 years ago, with the help from Chavez, who still had money at that point, I mean Venezuela, Argentina surprisingly returned its debt to IMF. And I remember the official first reaction from IMF, which was, oh my God, what does it mean now? They will behave irresponsible. You know, they were really literally shocked. They perceived as catastrophic news that Argentina returned, covered up the debt from them. So this is the next thing. What is so annoying for the West in Greece is that they admit their debt. This is even their reason. Varfakis' reasoning is, listen, in uh, 2008, we had 120 billions of debt. Now, after seven years of your austerity politics, the country is almost ruined economically, but our debt is up to, as we all know, 180, 85 billions. So, obviously, your solution doesn't work, not even for you. It's not that they are destroying Greece to get the debt at least repaid. They are not getting it. They are still throwing money. So Varoufakis extremely modestly is proposing them, let's make an arrangement, like give us a little break here so that productivity raises, so that we can e at least pay you some debt back. And it's, I think... Uh, Irrationality is on the side of Europe here. You know how you can detect this? That even, for example, when Varoufakis visited Ka sorry, I'm sorry, uh, Cameron and Osborne, the two conservative central figures of British government, they had great sympathy for Syriza. You know where I heard great sympathy for Syriza when I was in the United States recently? I listened, I always like right-wing TV, I listened to Fox News. There was a round table there practically pro-Syriza. So you should always be aware that what is happening now here, it's not at all about rational Europe encountering a crazy country who just wants to spend and so on and so on. No. 
it's a lesson of, of control, it's an ideological phenomenon, and so on, and so on, uh, and so on, and so on. Uh, my next point, so let's go further. Uh, another, and then maybe I can stop so that we don't go too far or how. Just one point I would love to make, uh, namely uh, uh, the point about, uh, sorry, uh, the point about uh, structure of power. Uh, how is power, how, this is I think an extremely interesting phenomenon, namely, uh, how does authority function today? Because I think this is part of this democratic game of, you know, we are all self-entrepreneurs and so on. Here I refer to the work of Alenka Zupancic and some other of my Lacanian colleagues in Slovenia. Traditional power works in a fetishist way, in the sense of you may know personally that that guy who embodies power is an idiot like you, but if he has the proper insignia, then when he speaks power, the law speaks through him. It's this fetishist logic of what in psychoanalysis we call uh, we call uh, uh, we call symbolic castration. Like, uh, uh, for example, uh, Socrates when he was condemned to death. No, his point is basically: I know those judges who condemned me are idiots, but nonetheless, they are legal power. Law speaks through them. So it's this, je sais bien, mais quand même. I know very well, but. I know very well you are an idiot like me, but, nonetheless, through you, a higher authority acts. So, okay, what I claim is that today, and this is maybe the big result of 68, 60s rebellion, and how this rebellion was reappropriated in a triumphant way by ruling ideology. Today, costumes, masks, this insignia of power are no longer, uh, no longer necessary. Today, power, uh, that, okay, I'll put it in this way. How does a typical, typical, not all of them, of course, boss act today? It's no longer insisting on this dignity and so on. It's more like, listen, I'm the same guy like you, let's be equal. You know, a typical boss today, I don't know, you come on Monday to the job, he kicks you, did you have a good sex, a nice, or, or you know, like, we are the colleagues displaying the same weaknesses at, as you, but the paradox is all this not only in no way undermines his or her power, it makes it even stronger. The paradox is that uh, the boss, the leader, authority, whatever, is allowed, as we say in psychoanalytic jargon, to display his castration, M make fun <laughs> of himself, ridiculous guy, weak, and so on and so on. And this in no way limits his power, but makes it makes it, in a way, even more absolute. In what sense? Uh, uh, because I claim that when you have this egalitarian boss, the oppression is even worse. Because it's not so much that there is no Herrschaft domination, but that 
domination itself becomes unspeakable. What do I mean by this? Once I had a debate with uh, uh, Judith Butler, who I think was here a couple of times in Vienna, you know her, and we have many, I had many polemics with her, but at one point I agree with her, where uh, she said that the most dangerous oppression, I simplify her argument, on women is not when they are directly oppressed, but when they are de facto oppressed, but this is masked by a superficial, oh, but we are the same, you know, like, false spirit of fraternal equality and so on and so on. So she had a wonderful proposal. She said that in such a situation, the most subversive gesture of a woman is to demand men to act as a master. Like, you are de facto master, so don't give me this bullshit that we are all equal. Give me orders, and this is the way to maybe to undermine domination. In what way? Let me return to the beginning, to our beloved Stalinism. An example that I always like to use, a fictional example. Let's say we are in Moscow, 1935. Let's say to be modest, you are a central committee, I am Stalin. Uh, somebody has to be. I give a big speech, you applaud, you know, you applaud, I applaud, and so on. Then we have a debate. One of you attacks me. Uh, uh, Next day, probably the big debate will be who has seen that guy alive the last no. But, ah, now that's not all. Let's say then that another of you stands up and starts to shout at this first guy who attacked me. Are you crazy? We don't do this here. We don't attack Comrade Stalin. I claim the second guy would disappear even faster. You see the point? It wasn't only prohibited to criticize Stalin it was even more prohibited to publicly announce this prohibition. It's not only that Stalin was a master, but if you say this, you were, well, you disappeared or whatever. So this paradox I find so fascinating. And here we learn so much about how ideology works, about how, uh, okay, we have relations of domination, but precisely the word domination is a domination which, in which you, if you are the dominated one, you have to pretend as if, act as if there is no domination. I could go on here, there are many paradoxes here, uh, which are not abstract theoretical paradoxes, but determine our daily life. Like, one of the basic ideological mechanisms, and this tells a lot about the freedom of choice, is that, to put it brutally, you are given the freedom of choice on one condition, that you make the right choice, you know. And now you will say, this is crazy. No, I think this is maybe even the fundamental feature of our uh, symbolic universe, in a way. Look, don't you have these rituals? I repeat now some of my old topics. Don't you have these rituals? For example, let's say you are rich, I am poor. You invite me to dinner. And although we all know in advance that you will pay, but there is, at least in my country, I think, a ritual that I have when the bill arrives, I have to insist a little bit, no, 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 let me pay, and then we play this game for 
I mean, if you really hate me, you should say, okay, pay. No, then. But uh, you see, but it's too easy to say that this is a hypocrisy. This is how politeness works. And at this level, ideology at its most elementary enters. I hope you don't know it. There is a story which was told to me by a friend of mine when he served military service, when he did his military service decades ago in old Yugoslavia. I don't know how it is in your army, but now you don't know. When you still had conscript army, with Yugoslavia, it was like this, probably most of the armies. Once you are there uh, in the army, for some two weeks you have elementary training, and there the big moment uh, uh, arrives, where all of you are gathered there, you repeat the pledge, I am red, blah, blah, and then you sign your name in some book, and you are a soldier now. Okay. What a friend of a friend of mine, this friend of mine was just there, saw this, did is something ingenious. After this ceremony, when he had to sign the book, he approached the officer and said, I don't want to sign it. And the officer told him, are you crazy? You will be arrested. Then my fr my the friend of my friend told him, but wait a minute, are you ordering me to sign it or is this a free pledge? Officer told him, of course it's free. Free decision. Then the guy said, but if it's free, why should I sign it then? And so on. So they got engaged in a paradox, and at the end, my, the friend of my friend got a paper. I have a photocopy. Where this officer gave him a written statement claiming that he, the officer, is ordering him, the soldier, is ordering him to freely sign the oath. <laughs> I think, again, you have this mechanism at the very beginning, and uh, I think we should do all these studies today if you want to get at how we are controlled today. For example, another story that I repeated 10, 20 times of how this permissivity can be even worse oppression. Imagine that you are a small boy, it's Sunday afternoon, your father wants you to visit your grandmother, and you hate it, of course. You would prefer to play with friends. If you have a traditional patriarchal father, everything is okay. No, the father will simply tell you, listen, I don't care how you feel, it's your duty to do it, do it and behave properly. If this happens, everything is okay. You will rebel, you will become a normal uh, young guy. Okay. But now enters the monster called postmodern permissive father. What does he do? Uh, uh, he does something like this. I know because I experience this. He tells you, you are free to go or not, but please be aware of how much your grandmother loves you and misses you and so on. So you know what he is really telling you? He is subtly not just ordering you to go, but he is ordering you to go voluntarily, to freely go. You know, this is the true terror. Not just you have to do it, but you have to want to do it. I, and I think, again, mechanisms like that are absolutely crucial today. This is what, I'm sorry we don't have time, more time to go into this, because this is, I think, so fundamental. That's why, if there is an era that I remember as a pure paradise, it was my military service. No, I'm not crazy. 
No, precisely I was shocked, disappointed. In my psychological structure, I'm kind of a fascist, probably. I like discipline and order. And what shocked me in the army was how, it's not really like that, at least Yugoslav army, beneath the discipline and order, there is an obscure domain of obscene jokes, perversions, and so on. And it took me a long time to guess how. There is nothing subversive in these jokes. They are absolutely crucial for the military discipline to reproduce itself. You know, and then more and more I'm convinced that every institution has something like this. For example, in the United States, the top colleges, you know, you have all these fraternities, sororities with their obscene rituals and so on. In Yugoslav military, ah, another thing fascinated me. This is what my gay friends don't like to hear. Officially, officially, publicly, the army was extremely brutally homophobic. And it really meant it. If a soldier was discovered to be gay, he was every night, be nobody dared to talk to him. He was usually every night beaten, you know, the standard ritual. Somebody pulls, puts a, a, a pillow on your head and others beat you with their belts and so on. Okay, you will say, okay, ah, it's not so simple. Because at the same time, the entire army life was penetrated by homosexual innuendos and so on. I remember, for example, in my unit, uh, when you met your friend in the morning, you didn't say good morning, you say, you say smoke mine. This was an euphemism for fellatio, you know. Like it was every, I could give you dozens of, so you know what fascinates me so much that no power structure can reproduce its, you, you need what I call inherent transgression. Apparent dirty transgressions, which may appear even subversive, but they are uh, part of the game. They are crucial for the reproduction of power structure. So why is this so important today? Because I think that today uh, the official public structure is more and more egalitarian. Yes, but relations of domination survive at this implicit, obscene, unspoken level. You know, this secret, like, when do you really admit something? When do you really belong to a community, from the nation to a family? It's not enough just to follow the explicit rules. It's also to know how and when to violate these rules. I think a community is never defined any communal body, just by the explicit rules. You not only, this is why people who, to learn manners, go, but nobody cares about it today. You know, when I was still young, you had these uh, 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 people who taught you good manners so that you know how to behave in high-class society, and it always fails. Why? Because they taught you the rules, but they didn't teach you how to violate the rules. You are really a member of a community if you know all these implicit rules of which rules are you to take seriously, which rules you have to violate, how. For example, there are rules which are meant to be transgressed, especially in sexuality. When, for example, in traditional patriarchal sexuality, when father tells you, 
not to mix with girls, it's really a call, do it discreetly, and so on, and so on. Uh, there are many rules like this, which just, you know, this is the St. Paul, Paul Bible dimension of, you need prohibition to generate your desire, and so on. But much more interesting for me is the opposite example. Not when something is prohibited, but the message of the law is to do it, but when something you are permitted, even solicited, to do it, you know, that you are given a freedom on condition that you don't use it. So if I may conclude with a story from my youth, I wasn't a big dissident, I was kind of a half dissident. And I remember when I was young, I was in a student journal, and we were, there were elections. Now, in ex-Yugoslavia, elections were not as bad as in Soviet Union. The party didn't get 99.7. They had enough, about 80, 85%. But we knew it, no? How it will. So we at the journal asked ourselves, what should we do? Some radical idiots proposed, why don't we simply openly do a heroic gesture? Let's publish an issue of this journal where we claim these were not free elections, these were a fake, and so on. Okay, we said, but everybody knows this. What would be the point? We would just appear <laughs> idiots, you know. So then one of us, not me, had an ingenious idea which worked. We said, they are claiming that these are real democratic elections. So let's just treat them like that. And on the evening of elections, we published an extraordinary issue of the journal with big titles, latest election results. It looks that communists will remain in power, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a wonderful act because they were so furious at us, at the Central Committee. Not really, we didn't risk being correct. And they called us there and said, boys, don't do this, you provoke us. Then we just naively said, listen, these were free elections and we felt the duty to inform people of the result. And it was so tragic, this party bureaucrat, because she couldn't have told us no, they were not free elections. She just said, boys, don't fuck with me. You know very well what I mean. We asked him, but what do you mean? Don't mess with me. You know, like, I almost felt the sympathy for that guy. You know, and now to really finish, because you once, when we had the last debate, asked me, where am I? Revolution, social democracy, whatever. Ah, I combined the two. No, not in some stupid synthetic way. That's why I like Syriza. That's why I like, up to a point, it's so fashionable today to be against President Obama. He did some good things. Why? Take Obama and universal health care. It's nothing revolutionary. My God, most of the Western liberal states have still some kind of universal health care. But in America, in the United States, it's a traumatic point. You know what happened to Obama. He was dragged up to the Supreme Court and so on. So I think the art of politics today is to formulate a specific demand, which is a very modest one. Nobody can accuse you, you want Stalinism or whatever. Like Obama healthcare, it's something that Canada has. But in that concrete constellation, it is extremely traumatic. You trigger a whole process. So not big demands. Big demands can often be meaningless, you know. Uh, I mean, I remember this from my 
communist youth in communist Yugoslavia in the last years, when they allowed dissidents up to a point, dissidents become a profession. These were wonderful times, you know. Communist Party financed, like there was a dissident congress, anti-communist in Paris, and the government, okay, you can go there, blah, blah, we finance you the trip. The catch was just what? Don't be too concrete, you know. Like, communism is worse than, than fascism. Ooh, they didn't care about that. But don't say repeal that law here in our country, you know. Like, uh, that's my lesson from those times, that the art is often not to make big radical demands. For example, take Greece today. They have a communist party, which is still a pretty strong one. Usually it gets between 5 and 10 percent. Now they lost. And it's the last big, as far as I know, Stalinist Communist Party. By Stalinist, I really mean Stalinist. They still reprint the collected works of Stalin, which is their sacred literature. And even, for example, their enemy is not uh, uh, Gorbachev. Their enemy is Khrushchev, who betrayed it by critics. And they said, no, Syriza is social democratic. No, let's wait. We want authentic revolution. And to be cynical, all right-wingers love them. Because they know that it's totally meaningless. They don't threaten anyone. Nothing changes. It's just a very comfortable position of sitting there in the back with your radical demands and so on and so on. You know, that's the tragedy. If you say we want communist revolution, it means nothing. If you just say like Varoufakis, let's renegotiate debts a little bit, everyone is in a panic. And that's what we should learn. And here we should be very specific to specific countries. For example, in the United States, universal health care triggers a process which you never know where it will end. We, in our countries, multiculturalism is a manipulated phrase. In Turkey, it means something with Armenians, uh, Kurds, and so on and so on. Here I see an option, you know, because what I'm... I love movies, so... But we are very prominent members of this community. We broke all the disciplines, rules, and everything, especially beginning with the time rule. You so, see, um, now I understand how I was in Poland. You're like Jaruzelski <laughs> now. Of course, no? of course. Okay. However, Sorry, I stopped. Yeah. However, okay. as for Jaruzelski, this was this part of the communist regime that already started to uh, uh, look uh, in certain dimension as what you hate Absolutely. in, in capo uh, capitalism, which is the cynical, yeah. uh, the cynical... I didn't have time, I totally agree. No, I will not talk again. But let's confirm me, that's but crucial how cynicism works today. I claim it's not only that ideology works, even if you don't take it seriously. Exactly. I'm ready to go a step further. I, you, it has to be not ta taken not seriously to work. We have this, and again, I know this from my youth in Yugoslavia. I know two friends who worked at the Central Committee in the 70s. They lost their job. One of them is Ivan Hvala, the other is my friend. They're not. Uh, why? Because they took self-management system seriously. They really believed in the system. And for nomenclatura, this was a horror. This was the first step towards this. This was exactly my point. That the biggest fear for the late communists was the, were the people who will really believe still in Marxism. Yeah. And immediately they, they, they expelled mm. them from party, or like at least they mm. isolated them somehow. Um, I actually, you know, there, there were so many questions asked to you, but I realized that maybe one uh, 
or never or rarely, I don't believe that there is any question not already asked, but one cannot... Uh, and not already answered, yeah. Um, that, um, but actually, the, the I, I collected all the examples of those paradoxes <laughs> that you that you invented, um, that you that you mentioned, like the one with uh, Syriza, uh, the one with uh, Fox News, that actually is like a big fan no, of. I couldn't uh, believe it, Syriza, but, but yeah. I think if you would like. Uh, no, sorry, can I just very briefly explain to you, and you will immediately understand me. Very reasonably, the point was. What really made them afraid, Fox, right-wingers, was, but in this way we are pushing Greeks to Putin. No, no actually this is the, the problem is that actually you can explain all those paradoxes pretty easily, <laughs> giving the small answers, which, and the only uh, disadvantage of the small answers is that they are not really spectacular. So like Give you me know, an example. I can, I can actually answer to almost all of your paradoxes, like why the, why the Western powers prefer um, prefer new democracy, so the people who are mm. responsible than Syriza, because they think that Syriza is an even bigger danger. Even th they, why? Are they are right. Why? Okay, but this is another discussion if they are right no, or not. Why? Why? But they are Syriza, extremely moderate social democracy. For you, but not for the people. Why? Why? Okay, I'm telling you what's. No, the it's not for me. It's not for me. It's by Western European standards of 40 years ago. It's extremely modest social democracy. Really modest. Like, they even now, uh, to give you the last proof, the latest news I have, they are not a priori against privatization. Actually, I'm not. It's a discussion about Syriza and uh, an agenda yeah. of Syriza. Yeah. This is one thing, but there is nothing paradoxical, actually, in the behavior of Western powers if, in the ranking of the dangers, Syriza is in a higher position than the previous powers responsible. So, actually, I don't see any. I also don't see anything really paradoxical in why Fox News is like a big fan of the left wing uh, um, or even Putin. Uh, actually, because behind this stays very coherent and exactly the same reason that they are anti-Americanists themselves. So anybody who actually is a, uh, uh, puts any pressure on the United States or like uh, or is uh, or can harm in any sense the the Western Alliance or whatever will be appreciated because enemy of my enemies. Uh, is my friend, which is like very coherent logic. I mean, at least from the pragmatic point of view. So, um, and, uh, and also you said something which uh, a lo lot of those paradoxes are based on the very Foucaultian point that, uh, like this, you know, uh, discipline and punishment. You mm -hmm. said that. Uh, so, so, so you said that, like about this, like the behavior in the capitalist countries, yeah. or like this, the the debt man. Yeah. I I totally agree. This is exactly what happens. All my friends that are indebted. They will be a hostage of the mainstream. Mm. They will always vote mm. for the ruling mm. party, and like, and it's even if they totally know that they are doing the thing against themselves. Mm. Actually, this is something new in this late capitalism: yeah. the <laughs> fact yeah. that we know that we are doing something bad to us, or or generally, uh, and we do it still. This is, I mean, solving this question, how to how to overcome it, would be probably the the solving the question of but the still left. But you didn't general. convince me. But let's go back. Okay, Foucaultian yeah. point would be easy. Yeah. I just I, I will yeah. I will answer you with a question. Like, if you really prefer the the previous solution than the control or the discipline, it's like to asking Foucault what he really prefers: torture of the state with the king or control with the kind with this with the like which is the advanced model of like economy society or whatever 
are you really sure that you're gonna choose the previous version of it without the control of Kapiar's country, without the cynicism, without all those okay. things that are this like is a complex question because I am one of the few madmen whom I know who is still for death penalty. <coughs> but this is another topic. No, I, I, I think that now now you are too abstract in opposing in uh, it first when you say torture, no? Uh, my God, uh, it's today that torture is re-legalized. You don't have to look into some dark past. This is another uh, fine point of ethical regression that I want. Uh, are you afraid that the way even those who oppose torture, the way we in the liberal West are talking about torture today, is something that if you were to talk like this 30 years ago, you would be considered a totalitarian madman. You know what I mean? That even those who reject torture already accept it as a, as a topic of debate and argumentation. Like they say, but it's not really efficient, you cannot rely on... No, I'm here for total dogmatism. I think we should rehabilitate dogma. Progress of humanity is the more good dogmas you have, all the better. So that you will not think that I'm crazy, let me give you another example, rape. Sorry, I wouldn't like to live in a society where you would have to argue all the time, you know, women really don't like to be raped or whatever. I would like to live in a society where you don't argue about this. Where if somebody starts with this bullshit, you know, uh, but women really secretly enjoy the enjoy it, he simply appears as a miserable idiot. You, you know, and it, again, it's easy to agree with this on rape. I would say the same about torture. But actually, it's, it's like with the difference between one uh, step of feminism and the second one. Mm. First, you have to show the difference, then to like overcome it and to mm. forget it in, ac in an active way. So like... Uh, um, so this is why you have to like open the question of rape exactly to close it and then to put it as mm. a part of consensus which is behind the discussion. But I, again, I don't see anything paradoxical. Actually, I, 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 I also don't see anything paradoxical in this like Saudi Arabia example. Saudi Arabia is supported by the Western powers because this is the uh, one of the very uh, not too many solutions to control the region. Like Libya, for example, was, is something which might be a bit a, uh, might be a big problem for your like order of exp or line of thought. Mm. Uh, yeah. Libya actually was uh, is a country that that was defeated like a dictatorship mm. and created much uh, more horrible problem exactly for the people to. Yeah, but it's not only Libya. Afghanistan is the same. Exactly. Iraq is exactly, the same. Exactly, I exactly. seriously claim that with regard to the position of women, Iraq now is worse under than under Saddam. And I have no sympathy for Saddam. But whatever you say about Saddam, this he was his regime was basically a secular regime with pretty important posts for women, education of women in his good years before he and that's the problem with dictators. Before he went crazy. But actually, this, these are the not easy questions. Like, would you really like to, like, I don't know, uh, uh, invade Saudi Arabia or like cut Saudi Arabia from any cooperation with Western powers? And what you get is for 80% the total mess in the in the or like the internal war, which, as any civil war in uh, Islam countries, 
It's totally bloody. The biggest victim of Islamism are Islamists. Islam themselves, of course. I, no, I see your point, and I'm here very, very pragmatic. I'm, I'm, the la I'm not a naive idiot who claims, you know, just give them democratic freedom and so on and so on. I'm just saying that, and this is not even a very original point. If you already return to this, the original scene is the end of World War I, when you had Lawrence of Arabia and all that bullshit. Let's not idealize it. But you have a kind of a genuine movement among Arabs. And then I think that this, not even United States, it was mostly England and France when they cut it with this. All, all states that we have now there are totally artificial. Afghanistan is artificial state, Pakistan is artificial state, and so on and so on. So all I'm saying is that the first thing to... I, I'm not proposing any, any easy solution. But if you ask me these two cases, Saddam and Gaddafi, please, I, they were disgusting, and I know horrors, my friends told me, who were there as journalists. But I think it would have been much wiser, now I will be cynical, and I will say, especially from the Western interest, not to overthrow Saddam and, uh, not to overthrow Saddam and, uh, and, uh, and Gaddafi. Look at Saddam. Listen, uh, that's why United States practically supported Saddam, I think, if you ask me, step further. The but, original but you know scene then, of the West then, is... Then, then Slavoj Žižek or someone else would challenge this, uh, or like actually would, yeah. would, would say why West doesn't like invade Iraq or Saudi Arabia if there is like and so on. So like actually... No, I agree. This is a very complex topic. I agree. I, I agree. There are no easy solutions. Okay, so we, I, I understand that we should, uh, absolutely, absolutely. So but what I'm saying is that, okay, let me put it like this, sorry. They're making the wrong invasions. Okay. Why, you know what I mean? They are as if they have an incredible instinct to make, what, look, uh, 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 the big fear of United States is Iran. They invaded Iraq. What's the result of this? That the main political force in today's Iraq is Iran who controls the Shia, and so on, and so on. It's just breathtaking. And, uh, but, but uh, sorry, to make another, no, I d precisely, I'm, if you ask me, I'm pretty much a pessimist here. I think we live in a complex world where whatever you do is in a way wrong, but my counter-argument to what uh, you said about Greece, and so on, I'm not talking about justice here. I think that what Western Europe is doing now with Greece will be in the long term catastrophe for European Union itself. That's my very simple prediction. Okay. It will cut Europe into two, who knows what will happen. I think, or, or put it in this way, as an old dogmatic Marxist, you know, people say, oh, there is a, we, pretend, we think we are a democracy, but there is some secret uh, ruling class. I hope there would be, there is not. Europe, European rule political elite is more and more losing its ability to govern. And it worries. Okay.